Welcome to the Pain Podcast, presented by Le Peuple Scientifique. We are thrilled to bring you a platform that unites clinicians, researchers, and pain advocates in sharing a pursuit, understanding pain. In this series of podcasts, we aim to bridge the gap between scientific knowledge and practical applications in the field of pain. Our episodes will feature insightful discussions with leading experts, exploring the latest research findings, innovative treatments and emerging trends in the realm of pain. Whether you are a healthcare professional seeking evidence-based practices, a researcher diving into the depths of the pain mechanisms, or a dedicated advocate striving to improve the lives of individuals in pain, you are welcome. Check out our website, get confident and competent in treating pain. Start today. This is the Pain Podcast. My name is Bart van Buchem. I'm a pain specialist physiotherapist. Um, Today, I've got Felicity Breathitt, and she is um, she is a postdoctoral researcher in the UniSA. She will introduce herself um, in a bit. And uh, but first, I would just want to welcome you, uh, Felicity. It's good to have you. Thanks for having me, Bart. It's great cool. to be here. Yeah. So uh, we, we met. A couple times in Adelaide. Uh, we also met in Budapest lately in, in Afik, um, which was a good reason to um, to reconnect. And um, we discussed a bit of your work, and uh, that's what we're going to talk about. So, so maybe there's something people need to know about you um, from your, your position, for example, at UniSA and uh, your work, so people got the right context of what they could expect from you. Sure, yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of South Australia. I'm a physiotherapist by background, um, but I've pretty much spent my entire career in research. Um, I work really closely with Associate Professor Tasha Stanton, who I believe has starred on this podcast before. <laughs> um, and so we've been doing osteoarthritis research together for the last four or so years now. Um, working quite closely together, as well with, with uh, Professor Lorimer Mosley um, within his group Body and Mind. Um, I did my PhD with Lorimer as well, so I've been kind of around the Body and Mind group for the past decade-ish now. So it's, yeah, great way to learn about pain science and become a pain researcher. <laughs> Can't get a much better experience than that. Yes, I can. People can <laughs> relate to that for sure. So... Um... Yeah, so maybe I think that would be good to have some background. So your so your work has focused on some very different stuff that we are going to discuss right now. But I was I just just from curiosity and um, back to um, perhaps back to uh, uh, ten years ago where you did your PhD. So what what was that about? Yeah, it was it was really fun actually. Um, so basically, I started my PhD planning on running a clinical trial for dry needling. <laughs> um, and then I realized pretty quickly that there wasn't really a good control condition or placebo um, condition for dry needling. So I decided to change my entire PhD and address that problem first rather than conduct another trial that's not very easy to interpret with a bad control. Um, so, yeah, instead, I developed a framework to, be, to develop better placebos for complex interactive pain treatments, such as dry needling, but also other, we have this problem across the board with non-drug treatments, exercise, manual therapy, all these sorts of things. It's really hard to conduct a placebo-controlled trial. 
So what we did was um, we used dry needling as the model to test a framework, but basically we had a four-stage four iterative process where we ended up developing a placebo for dry needling that blinded not just the patients, but also the therapists as well, which was a word, world first. So that was really exciting. And the, I think the key or the secret to the success of that was that we had magicians involved. <laughs> so we were using their kind of deceptive techniques and their, their just their amazing knowledge of how to like manipulate our perceptions and cognitions that shape our beliefs. And um, so we all used all sorts of tricky strategies to help blind both the patients and therapists in our final study that we that we tested the placebo in and it worked. So yeah, lots of fun. So, so how does it still shapes your, so, so your work today is, is slightly has moved to consumers um, and co-design methods with patients as well. And maybe, uh, maybe a hard question, but how does that, that work in, in placebo design is still helping you today with your work with patients as uh, co production and co-designing uh, studies itself? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a bit of a shift in direction that I've taken over the last four or so years. Um, yeah, uh, it just kind of happened that I took, started going down this different path of doing more clinical research and more consumer engagement. But I have taken some, some of the learnings I took from my PhD work was how to actually work with people with different sorts of expertise. So one of the stages in my PhD was a practical workshop where we had experts in dry needling, um, experts in clinical trial methodology and magicians attend. Um, and we really used a co-design process. It wasn't called that at the time. It was kind of before that phrase kind of came into um, popular, uh, yeah, but like common terminology. Um, but we were, now that I look back on it, it was a co-design process where we were listening to all these different people with their different forms of expertise to come up with a, solu to, uh, with a solution together. Um, and I think that stage of my PhD was, again, what led to the success of the final placebo, having all that, those different people give their input in a really, um, yeah, collaborative way. And yeah, so that's what I'm doing now, but with, more with the patients. And we do have experts involved as well in the, in the co-design stuff that we're doing, um, but the patients are the ones we are, um, yeah, listening to and bringing into the process the most. So this is bridging nicely to co-production and co-design, co-development, whatever the term <laughs> we use, we probably mean that by the same, that by definition, probably going to be the same-ish. Um, so I think for the listeners, it will be quite interesting to understand what does it really mean in the context of your research? Yeah, so basically it all started uh, just over two years ago now. Um, I was lucky enough to get some funding to do my own osteoarthritis research. Um, and one of the stipulations of the funders was to um, have a consumer advisory panel. So basically a panel of about six to 10 people with lived experience of osteoarthritis to meet with every few months to talk about the research that we're doing and get their feedback. Um, so I'd never done that before. I'd done a, a bit of co-design in my PhD, but not with patients. So I was kind of going in a bit naive and um, I'm willing to admit I was a, almost a little bit sceptical about it as well. I, I wasn't sure um, what they'd bring to the table. 
But I decided, yeah, obviously went ahead with it and we did some um, workshops with the consumers. We got six consumers involved um, and we weren't planning on publishing the workshops, but the information and insights we got from these consumers during these workshops was just incredible. So we ended up publishing it with all six of them as co-authors. Um, and what was really interesting about that process was we actually went to them with a, a bit of a plan of the research we were going to do over the next few years with this funding. Um, we came to them and it was actually going to be an educational, a pain science educational intervention that we were going to develop that would be delivered through virtual reality. Um, so we proposed this idea to them. We had ethics approval already and all, it was all ready to go. We had the equipment <laughs> And they were just like, no, we don't like this idea. We want you to do this instead. <laughs> that was pretty difficult to hear. Like once you've got, you know, everything kind of ready to go and you're just kind of thinking, oh, we'll get a bit of feedback on the idea um, and, you know, shape it a little bit. But <laughs> we had to fully change the entire research direction that we were taking. And that's why we thought it was really important to publish this work as well, because actually having that consumer voice has probably saved us a lot of time and money and and potentially doing research that doesn't matter was to them. That the, was that um, the scenario you were afraid of in the first place, that it might be, so what comes from consumers may, well, in some way change the way you work and therefore lots of work that's been done is, <laughs> maybe it's definitely not useless, but it will be very, uh, it could be getting really chaotic. Is that something you anticipated on, on the, in the first place? I went into those workshops knowing that there might be some pushback on the virtual reality idea. All the six consumers are kind of older. Um, uh, and so, yeah I, yeah, I thought, oh, it's possible that they might not like the technological aspect of the virtual reality. Um, but they actually had much more to say about it than just the technology. Um, they were talking a lot about how it's a very one-on-one -on -one individual intervention it's not very scalable it's not very accessible all these other things as well that are actually really important to consider um, and they were kind of suggesting that instead we should be thinking more at the societal level because that's where the barriers and issues really exist around people getting the best treatment and management strategies for their osteoarthritis it's that all throughout society they have there's all these myths out there about osteoarthritis that are direct barriers to um best practice management, for example, the classic wear and tear myth. If you believe that your um, joint is and your osteoarthritis is caused by wear and tear and then you're given an exercise program, that makes absolutely no sense. But you hear that phrase all the time still. And it's not just people with osteoarthritis. It's health, some health professionals still are using this language as well. Um, people's family and friends, the media, online information, it's everywhere. So they were talking about this and how we need to actually tackle the these issues at the societal level. And then when we came to them with this virtual reality idea, it just did not sit with, with that idea. Um, so yeah, that's what we're like, yeah, you know what, you're right. <laughs> we, let's, let's change direction and let's actually see where this takes us. And, you know, to be honest, I'm much more excited about where my research is heading now. So yeah, and I have the consumers to thank for that for sure. So, so because you're inviting or patients and consumers seem to be involved from the very, very start now, from the even early design stage. So what are 
what would you consider to be the the positives there uh, and what would be the complexity of doing this mm, good question I th yeah I think the positives are something I've definitely learned through experience um, the research that we're doing now so basically at the moment we're um, co-designing um, educational resources that are planned to be hopefully implemented via some public messaging in the future so things like little videos that are educating and myth busting about things like wear and tear um, bone on bone these myths that create barriers for people um, and yeah that is actually a really uh, big recent imperative in health research generally to have consumers involved from the start so before you even decide what research you're going to do we should be having consumers involved to help shape those research questions so while there can be some complexities with that um, you just need to think about um, at what level is appropriate to involve the consumers. So for us, um, we went for the equal, equal partnership level. So basically that just meant um, that we took their input as seriously as our own and other stakeholders, other experts. We looked at all everyone's input and kind of put it all together. So no one's opinion mattered more than anyone else's. But um, that might not be appropriate for every kind of study or research that you're doing. Um, it might be more appropriate to have work at a different level with the consumers for, um, say, more scientific experimental work or, um, you know, things like that where it's, um, yeah, it's more difficult to have consumers involved. But with this, what we were really looking at how do we actually make the world a better place for people living with osteoarthritis? And so working at that equal partnership level is really appropriate in this case and it actually... Um, yeah, has led to a, to a much more meaningful research question and, um, yeah, and the research that we're actually, we're actually creating some outputs that can be um, implemented into clinics in the real world um, immediately, which is great. So what is the, what, what's the, um, how would you consider the, the um, let's say the capacity and the, let's say the knowledge of a consumer who's part of a team so what would you consider their level of engagement for example and what's their background ideally or maybe there is no ideal i reckon that could be quite biased as well in some way because people bring their own thoughts and feelings and uh, uh, ideas with them so so what is the how has that process been shaped to to get a re representable group of people um basically representing patients right in, in in a country or in the world perhaps with osteoarthritis in this case yeah yeah that's a good question um it it's we've been really lucky so the people that volunteered to be part of our consumer advisory panel um are just really altruistic people that are really willing to give their time i didn't actually have enough funding to pay them or anything so they were really just contributing as volunteers to these um, workshops and meetings that we've been having um uh that it is quite a biased sample though and that is one of the limitations of the co-design work we've been doing um essentially they're pretty well-off people who have time to give um that mostly most of them are retired for example so they've got some spare time um they're managing well with their osteoarthritis as well none of them have had joint replacement surgery um and so obviously that's not the kind of group we're actually trying to target with our research. 
but they're the people, the kind of people that will put their hand up for this kind of role. So it's tricky, but what we're trying to do is find other ways of involving people, consumers who are from other demographic backgrounds that don't require so much altruism and time and things like that. So, for example, at the moment um, we've co-designed some educational videos that I mentioned before, um, and we're testing them online using an online survey where we're purposively sampling um, to try and get at those demographics that we're really trying to help and get feedback from them in that way, which is, you know, a 20-minute survey instead of having to commit to regular meetings and things like that. Um, so we're trying to address that limitation of representativeness in that way, but it is tricky. Um, but on the flip side of that, all the people that we've had involved have been wonderful. They've, they're highly educated, which I think helps. So they're able to reflect on community issues more broadly than their own personal situations, which is really important. But we also had um, some great assistance from some co-design experts in order to help shape the co-design workshops that we've been conducting as well. Um, one of them is actually an architect. He's not in health at all, but um, architects use, have been using co-design techniques forever. They have to design um, yeah, living spaces, environmental spaces, things like that with the client in mind at the whole time. So they've been using co-design <laughs> for a lot longer than we have. Um, and they're just so creative in the way that they actually ask questions and get to, at, to the heart of what the client really wants. So we've been using that in our co-design work. Um, so we use different prompting questions and activities to try and understand, um, yeah, what the real problems are facing people with lived experience of osteoarthritis. One of my favourite examples that we actually used in our initial co-design workshops is an activity called perspective taking. So basically we asked the consumers to imagine there was someone else with osteoarthritis. So, and this person um, has been told they need surgery. They're really uh, fearful of doing any sort of movement or exercise because they believe that that causes more damage because of wear and tear. And they have been told that they're bone on bone. So that all their cartilage is gone. They can't do any more movement or exercise. That won't help. Um, but then, you know, they're put on a surgical wait, waiting list and in the meantime told to go and see a physio. The physio prescribes an exercise program and we get them to imagine, okay, you're in that situation. How do you feel? Um, what do you think when you get your, your prescribed that exercise program? What goes through your head? And the reason we get them to imagine that there's someone else is then it reduces these any sensitivities around any personal beliefs or being wrong. It creates a little bit of abstraction and detachment from those personal beliefs and situations and it can be about someone else and not them anymore um, and then that really creates some more open discussions about um, about uh, what's facing people out there in the real world when they are trying to manage their osteoarthritis and um, one of the good questions we ask with that activity as well is like what would convince you um, to engage with an exercise program if you were in this situation? And yeah, it just really, really got some good conversations going. So could you have seen that the, the result uh, of, of the design, the, the end product, can you see in the result, it's different than it used to be than without the co-design uh, element? Um, as in the research that we're doing now as compared yeah. to what we would be doing? Yeah, for example, or yeah. the, the result of the, the product, for example, the, the information that people insist. So you can you see directions you never 
you've never took or you would have not done without the perspective from the patient or the co-design. Absolutely. And I've actually just um, analysed some data on the first video that we co-designed with our consumers. Um, and uh, so we got people to uh, fill out a questionnaire before and after watching the video that was looking at osteoarthritis beliefs. Um, and then we asked for some general feedback as well. And um, we saw improvement, large, moderate to large improvements in beliefs in people with OA, people without OA and health professionals, which was really exciting. Um, but what really struck me though was um, the feedback that we got about the video. Um, almost everyone in the feedback survey talked about how it was so easy to understand and it used really patient friendly language. And that's a real testament to our, our consumer team. They, um, we drafted the transcript for the video together. We reviewed the draft animation. Um, we, so we went through several rounds of iteration with the consumers to create something together like that. And I think, yeah, it has potential to be something quite innovative and um, potentially impactful if we do end up being getting the opportunity to share it publicly. Could you imagine not using this methodology in designing products for patients or treatments for patients without the co-design? Could you imagine it now once you've done this process um, or is it a mandatory part of, that has to be part of this designing the study and designing from the very beginning on, right? So not, not just testing whether they like it or not. It's starting from the very, very early stages. Can, can you see or could you imagine not doing it? I couldn't now. I'm definitely a fully, fully, like full convert. Full convert. I would never do anything now without a consumer advisory panel. <laughs> um, but I think actually it it will get more and more difficult for anyone to not have consumers involved in research now. Um, even things like grants, um, publications, you, you often have to have a paragraph on how you involve the patient and the public in the research um, for most journals now. So, um, yeah, it's going to get harder and harder to get away from. We need that patient voice in everything that we do. And I, I, I think it's really exciting to see that journals and funding bodies and things are also recognising that. Yes, and I, but in a way you describe it, it's it's from it's not mandatory to go through the the very very early start of a design, is that correct? So that that's a deliberate decision you make as a researcher to start even from the drawing table, and I love the metaphor as an architect, <laughs> uh, even the very early stages to bring someone in as when it comes to the clinic, for example, and, and designing a treatment plan, and I know you're not. You're not working as a physio at the moment, but what will be your advice if you if you're designing a treatment plan for an individual for a little group, even without starting? What will be the the planning phase, for example? What your lessons learned that may be applicable for maybe applicable for the clinic as well? Could you could you do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. I think, um, yeah, I think what I probably have learnt the most from this process, as I mentioned before, was how to ask the right questions. And I think that has huge relevance for clinical practice as well. So, um, you know, the perspective-taking activity is one thing, but other ways that we asked people questions were using things like 
um, prioritization. So um, we instead of getting people to list off everything that they can think of, can we get them down to what are the top three most important things for you right now? Or like, what do you see as the biggest problem or the or the biggest challenge you've experienced when you're trying to manage your OA and to really get at the, the heart of um, what matters to them rather than just everything they can possibly think of. Um, another question we used or a type of question we used was um, negative framing. So um, if you go to a group of patients or consumers or any, a single patient or consumer and ask them what would be the best solution for you, that's a really difficult question to answer and most people can't answer it. Um, uh, so we just flip it around and we actually say, what would be the worst solution for you? Um, and that's much easier to answer. <laughs> and it really does draw on a person's lived experience and it still can be flipped and translated back to a potential solution in most cases. So that was a really useful question that we got a lot of, a lot of, a lot out of, but probably the favorite question that we used was, um, uh, it was an imaginative journey. So we asked people, um, imagine you're a rich celebrity. Um, what would you do to manage it away then? So we take away those huge, obvious barriers that affect every almost everyone, which is money and time. And now you're a rich celebrity and you don't have to worry about those things. What would you do then? And we just got the best answers to that. Um, one lady talked about how she would hire an OA coach that she had 24-hour access to so she could text them whenever she, a question popped into her head rather than having to wait, you know, weeks or months between appointments with her health professional. Um, she could also, um, you know, regularly catch up with them to keep her motivated with an exercise program and reassure her, her if she had a flare-up, um, all these sorts of things, that 24-hour kind of like motivational coach that's always by your side. So, yeah, I think that was just a really great way of asking about actually what do you see as like the ideal scenario for you and how can we make that work into your life? And how did you experience these um, preferences, if you like, conflicting with a program that you were anticipating for? Like, for example, exercise may not be the most comfortable thing with OA knee or OA problems, which um, especially when you feel like it's a not a bad thing to do uh whatever the reason may be but have you found mm -hmm. people that that do have these wishes or challenges and they say well the best thing i could do probably is not moving and the worst thing i can do is a lot of exercise um uh, have you experienced pushback in that sense um and how to deal with that yeah it's a it's a really good question as well um so luckily in my group of six consumers, as I mentioned, they're all doing quite well managing conservatively. So we haven't had much pushback from them. I think they've had a few like light bulb moments and surprises with some of the information we've discussed. Um, like some of them probably did have sort of some beliefs around wear and tear, but we're kind of getting on with it anyway. Um, but yeah, no real pushback. But I guess from my other experience as a in my clinical trial coordinator hat. Um, so I'm running a clinical trial for knee osteoarthritis at the moment as well. Um, and one of the things that we found to be most helpful for people who do have that initial pushback reaction is talking about cartilage <laughs> and actually how it is a bioplastic 
tissue just like any other tissue in the body that's often something they've never actually heard before and um that's you know that's actually the subject of the first animation we co-designed because we saw it having we got such great feedback on it in the trial so we thought we'd start there with the co-designed animations but basically the animation is great because it talks about some of the new science coming out that looks at actual cartilage health and um it looks at cartilage of for example, people who are exercising a lot and runners versus sedentary people. And runners who technically have the ultimate wear and tear kind of condition, um, they actually on average have healthier cartilage and are much less likely to develop away than people who are sedentary. So yeah, yeah, really busting that wear and tear myth with that kind of little nugget of information. And then you can also flip it and start to talk about astronauts. So there's been some cartilage studies in astronauts now as well, where people have been in low load situations for prolonged periods of time where there's no, no less gravity. And they come back to Earth and their cartilage is actually less healthy. <laughs> so you talk about this with, with people with osteoarthritis and they're, they're just like, oh, wow, I've, I've never heard that before. I just thought my cartilage was gone and you know, I couldn't do anything about it, but that can actually start them thinking, oh, maybe it's not wear and tear. Maybe I can go out and exercise and I'll be safe and I'm not going to make things worse. So that's probably yeah, the biggest thing I've I've seen have an impact with the, with that pushback. Yes, and I, I, I definitely can relate to that feeling of if you're going to uh, involve patients in the planning of your therapy, it's especially when you work as a protocolized um in a protocolized manner uh it's really challenging you've gone you want to keep people in in the queue uh and 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 they do they do whatever uh is being requested or whatsoever but um as i as you you're mentioning it's quite interesting open the open up the opportunity so people seem to be very capable to imagine <laughs> what they need and what i also took away from this is the negative framing just label it and you have to talk about it before you even starting uh talking about the tissues back again just that's where people are with their minds and as an architect you have to you have to shape the plan so everyone can work with it and i, I just i really love that that metaphor of an architect and i think that's something that we might do could do better as a profession in in healthcare uh even though and that's where my feeling might be reluctant so so people may come up with things that we cannot provide or maybe are not as evidence-based or not as good because they would prefer not moving whereas exercise may be their biggest benefit but it's really interesting. And I think that this trial you're talking about, you're managing this trial, uh, could give some very nice insights, I guess, of how this process works and what are the elements. And I was, when I heard about this trial, I was quite surprised that the level of the, 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 the weight of the, the tissue brought back into uh, the relevance for patients. It's about... The, the cartilage and the number of hours or time spent on that is quite quite heavily and i think with the recent shift let's say to the more sensitization paradigms has moved shifted a bit, a bit back i guess and i i think that's a very positive uh where it's balancing again we're trying to find both worlds it, it did i is that a recap or a summary that sort of <laughs> um 
respects the things that we've been talking about so far. Definitely. And yeah, I think, yeah, really picking up on that cartilage point as well is um, we see often with people with osteoarthritis, that's, they've got a very singular sort of blame about why they have pain. It's all to do with the cartilage. So if you can bust that myth for someone that can be really liberating. Um, and yeah, so I think talking about cartilage and all this new science that we're seeing coming out is really helpful to help people understand actually, um, no matter what your x-ray says, you're still safe to move. And um, in fact, that could actually really help your pain. Yeah. Um, another thing actually I'll, I'll quickly share as well is um, all of our consumers also talked about the power of stor storytelling. So, um, and in fact, one of our consumers had an amazing story where he, um, I actually met him a long time ago when he did one of our clinical trials few years ago and it was a walking program and pain science education intervention um, and at the start of that trial he um, was asked to set some goals with the physio um, and he set one of one of the goals was um, to walk the Camino Trail in Spain but he called that an aspirational goal because he kind of didn't really believe he could do it but he it was something he kind of always wanted to do in his life but never got around to um, and he also didn't think he could do it because he'd recently been told he needed bilateral knee replacements. <laughs> um, but he decided to try this trial instead. Then after the program, which was about 12 months, um, that following year, he kept working towards his goal, walking longer and longer distances. And he ended up walking the Camino Trail, which was 320 kilometres in 14 days. And I just think sharing that story with people with osteoarthritis can be so powerful if it's some someone that they see in themselves, someone's got the same condition and they've had all this success with a conservative management program, then they can do it too. It makes it more believable. Um, and, yeah, so we're hoping to publish that story as a case study soon. So hopefully it'll be out soon. Um, but even, you know, if you have patients with similar success stories, share them with your patients because I think they're more powerful often, oftentimes than sharing numbers and statistics <laughs> people want to know that actually this can work and i've seen it work before oh that's yeah yeah it's really interesting because i think that that's very as a role model that people tend to believe other people in the same condition far more and trust them more than the healthcare professional at least it's in europe that's the case um whereas uh um, I love that question as well. Like, pretend you you are there, or uh, imagine you're a rich person. There's no boundaries or whatsoever. That that people can go beyond their imaginations, and and it's opening up some really interesting possibilities that actually therapists and doctors can be very helpful. So, I think this is um, super valuable. And um, thank you for sharing, Felicity. This is um, I think that lots of food for thought and from the early designing your clinical work or plan with patients all the way up to trying to get people's their imaginations when you are planning and motivating people to, to really seek for their possibilities rather than their disabilities, I guess. And uh, um, yeah, that's something we, we probably going to use a lot. So thank you for sharing. It's, it's very helpful. Um, Cool. Um, we're going to wrap this up now. So just uh, allow me to thank you, Felicity. It's great to, to have you for the 30 minutes. Um, I think people would experience this as a very 
uh, interesting, but also very helpful, very practical um, podcast. So um, many thanks for that in behalf of all the listeners of the Pain Podcast, Flip Up Scientifique. So um, you go into summer by now. And we going, we were diving into the winter. So um, hopefully we'll, we'll catch up at some point where the sun shines, I guess. <laughs> and oh, yeah. uh, and uh, thank you for joining Felicity. Um, much appreciated. No worries. Thanks again for having me, Bart. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Um, thank you, listeners. Um, see you or you hear us in two weeks again. Thank you. Mm-hmm.